All right, well, if you would, turn to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. We want to get back into the book of Acts. I'd like to do something a little different with this passage in Acts, because it's a very important passage. We're at the end of Acts chapter 2. We're going to look at verses 37, or excuse me, 36 through 47. What's happened so far in the book of Acts is that in chapter 1, the Lord Jesus ascends to heaven after having appeared to his disciples over a 40-day period. He commissions them to take the gospel to the ends of the earth and to be his witnesses. They see him ascend to heaven. They go back and they, at least 120 of them, uh, gather together in an upper room and they pray and they set apart Matthias to be the 12th um, apostle. And then in chapter 2, at the beginning, we see the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit comes and, and empowers them to speak in other languages. And the people there who are gathered for the celebration of Pentecost in Jerusalem hear the gospel being proclaimed in all these different languages. And some people think that maybe uh, the disciples are drunk, And Peter gets up and he begins preaching a sermon in verse 14 and he explains to them that no, it's only nine o'clock in the morning, so they're not drunk. Uh, But what has happened is what God said would happen in Joel, the book of Joel, is happening, that he would pour out his spirit upon his people. And so he goes on to say the reason why this is happening now is because Jesus has been exalted to the right hand of God. And because he's been exalted to the right hand of God, he is the one who has sent forth his spirit, and that's why all these things are happening. And so let me read for us verses 36 through 47, and we'll begin looking at this passage this morning. It says in verse 36, this is the conclusion of Peter's sermon to the crowd that's gathered in Jerusalem. He says, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now, when they had heard this, or when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. And with many other words, he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. So then those who had received his word were baptized. And that day there were added about 3,000 souls. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all, as anyone might have need. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. 
And the Lord was adding to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. This is the word of God. What I'd like to do this morning as we return to the book of Acts is to kind of make a bridge between what we were talking about the last couple Sundays and what we find here in the book of Acts. And the way I'd like to do that is I'd like to remind you of the way that um, redemption history is often broken down. And I want to add a little bit to the common way it's broken down in terms of creation, fall, redemption, and consummation. I want to add a little bit to that so that you can see where Acts falls in and where we fall in even a little more clearly, hopefully. And so the history of redemption starts with God and creation. God is a good God. He created a good world. He created Adam and Eve, and he put them in paradise. And so the Bible in Genesis 1 and 2 starts off with a declaration of the existence of God, the creation of the world by God, and that all that God created was good, including mankind. But we see very quickly in chapter 3 that mankind, Adam and Eve in the beginning and everyone since, um, have sinned against God. We call mankind, Adam and Eve, rebelling and eating of the forbidden fruit, the fall. And so we see uh, right at the very beginning, uh, man rebelling against God, rejecting God, and it plunges mankind into suffering and evil. So the good world becomes evil because of man's rebellion against God. But in Genesis chapter 3, right in the midst of God dealing with Adam and Eve and the serpent, God promises that he would send a seed of the woman who would crush the serpent's head, who would defeat evil, who would save uh, a people. And as a result, the rest of the Old Testament from Genesis 3 through Malachi is about God keeping that promise. And he chooses Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and he works through Moses, and he works through uh, David, and he chooses the nation of Israel, and he is moving toward, ultimately, the seed of the woman being brought into the world. And so the whole rest of the Old Testament is God keeping his promise to provide an answer to the rebellion of sinners against him and the fallen world that resulted. As a result, we see at the very beginning of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we see an account of Jesus, who is the seed of the woman, promised in Genesis 3, who comes, who is God in the flesh, and he comes not to judge, but to redeem. He comes to lay down his life for sinners, to be the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And he does that through his perfect life, his death on the cross, and his resurrection. And then, from the book of Acts on to the end of the New Testament, we have the age of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit has come. Jesus ascended back to heaven. The Holy Spirit has come. And Jesus has commissioned his church to preach the free offer of the gospel. And what's the free offer of the gospel? That if you will turn to God for mercy, if you'll turn from your sin, and you'll trust in the one he's provided and embrace him as your Lord and Savior, you will find forgiveness, you'll find eternal life, you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. 
So this day and time is the age of the Spirit of God and the free offer of the gospel. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, it says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. And in 2 Corinthians, Paul says, This is the acceptable time. This this day is the day of salvation, not not a 24-hour period, but this period in history is the period of... Salvation, when you can, people can be saved, you can be saved. God has provided a Savior in Jesus, and God is calling people to trust in that Savior. And so that's why Paul could say in 2 Corinthians 5, Now all these things are from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ, and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, namely that God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, And he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So this period in history is the the period of the Spirit and the free offer of the gospel and the mission of the church to proclaim the good news that there is a Savior, an able and willing Savior whose name is Jesus. And you can be forgiven. You can be reconciled to God if you'll turn from your sin, turn to God for mercy, and trust yourself to the one that God has provided. So that's where the book of Acts comes in. That's what's going on here. And it's important to see that that's where we are in the history of redemption. But what lies ahead? Well, at the very beginning of the book of Acts, the the disciples are looking up into heaven, and they're watching Jesus go to heaven, and angels appear and say, one day Jesus is going to come back just the way you saw him go into heaven. He's going to return. But that wasn't what they were supposed to just stand there and wait around for him to return. They were given a mission, and that's what the free offer of the gospel is and the mission of the church. But one day, Jesus will return, and the Bible says he will return not to save, but to judge. The first time he came, he came to save. The next time he comes, he will come to judge, which means all of us will give an account of our lives to God. Every word, every action, every thought will be judged by the Lord Jesus himself. And then, after judgment, comes the consummation, which is, ultimately, God fulfilling everything that he's promised us in Jesus. Um, Right now, we simply have a taste of what God has promised us in Jesus. We have a taste of peace, a taste of joy, a taste of his love, but one day we will have the overwhelming flood of joy and peace and love, and we will be fully and forever happy. And that is what the kingdom of God is all about. It's about God bringing heaven to earth. And so that's why, if you read the Gospels carefully, it talks about the gospel of the kingdom. There's a sense in which the gospel is about Jesus, because 
nothing could happen apart from what he did for us. But why did he do what he did? He did what he did so that we could dwell in the very presence of God forever and enjoy the kingdom of God, heaven on earth, the new heavens and the new earth, which is talked about at the very end of the Bible. And so that's the context for the book of Acts is we are in the age of the spirit and the free offer of the gospel. And why is that important? Because for us personally, it raises the question, have I received that free offer? Have I actually turned from my sin, turned to God for mercy, and embraced Jesus as my Lord and Savior? Because that's what's happening right now. God is offering himself. Jesus is offering himself to the world to be saved. The question is, have I personally received him as my Lord and Savior and thereby received forgiveness of sins, received the gift of the Holy Spirit, received eternal life? Second question is, how do I need to grow? If indeed I have received Jesus, have entrusted myself to Jesus, how do I need to grow in living in light of the fact that I've been called to be a witness to Christ? How do I personally need to become more like Christ in that? Well, in these passages, or excuse me, this passage and these verses and at the end of chapter 2, you could say what we have is a microcosm of the Christian life. A microcosm is a, a kind of um, miniature of the whole. Uh, so in these verses, we have sort of a, a, uh, a p- passage that highlights for us, <coughs> excuse me, the um, key elements that we ought to see and understand with regard to what it means to come to Christ and to walk with Christ. And uh, like I said, I'm going to take a little more time working through this than I might normally uh, do so with a passage because uh, this forms, in a sense, the foundation for the rest of the book in terms of what you will see in the book. And so if we look at what's going on, and all this is reflected in your notes as well, the first thing that we'll see that's being talked about in this passage is the conviction of sin, and that's where we're going to start, is that the work of God in the heart of sinners is to begin, one way or the other, with helping them to see that they need a Savior. You're not going to come to God for the forgiveness of sins if you don't believe you have anything to be forgiven for. You're not going to uh, come to Jesus to do for you what you can't do for yourself if you think you're good, you're okay, that your righteousness is sufficient, that you're good enough as you are. If you think that, then you won't go to Jesus, and the conviction of sin is very much about that. Next thing we see in terms of coming to Christ is the call to repentance and faith. That the, with that conviction of sin is the gospel call to turn to God for mercy. If you see your sin, turn to God for mercy, turn away from your sin, and trust in the one that God has provided for us to be forgiven and to enable us to live to please God. And then there's the confession of baptism. Now, there are some people who would say these are strict uh, stages that every person needs to go through. I lean more toward the idea that many people take that Many times, it's 
it's woven together, that these are strands of what it looks like in coming to Christ. And there's no doubt that uh, one way or the other, you're going to have conviction of sin if you're truly coming to Christ in a saving way. You're go- there's going to be a response to the call to repent and believe. And baptism in the New Testament is something that um, no one uh, would have thought of a believer not being baptized. Because baptism was the way you proclaimed uh, that Jesus was Lord, that you were submitting to his lordship. And so all those things was a part and is a part of coming to Christ. But once it begins to talk about the community of believers, it talks about different things that were characteristic of their community. And one is a life of communion, a life of fellowship with God publicly and privately. That to be Christians means I've been reconciled to God and therefore I care whether or not I'm having fellowship with God privately and publicly. It's a life of community where if I've been reconciled to God, that means I've also been reconciled to all those who've been reconciled to God. I've I've been put into a family and therefore I should care about whether or not I'm sharing my life with other Christians and whether or not I'm sharing my gifts with other Christians. And there's more to say that about that when we get there and we'll talk about that. And then the Christian life or walking with Christ is a life of compassion where I'm, I'm giving to meet the needs of others. I'm concerned about the spiritual condition of others as well as their um, temporal condition. And therefore, like Jesus said, uh, we... Seek to show compassion as God calls us to. And so the Christian life um, includes coming to Christ and walking with Christ. And all these things are at least touched on in this passage. And so I want to spend some time uh, looking at these things. And it will help us as we work our way more quickly through the rest of the book. But we want to start this morning with the issue of the conviction of sin, the issue of conviction of sin. Um, if there's anything in our day and time that is politically incorrect, it's the idea of sin. And why is that? Because if I go to someone and I say in a conversation, you know, that's wrong. You know, God says that sin, Do you, you know, you're not supposed to do that. If I say those kinds of things or you say those kinds of things, then you're more than likely, depending on who you're talking to, especially if you're not talking to another believer, hopefully if you're not talking to another believer, um, you're going to get pushback of some kind. There's going to be some pushback that says, who are you to tell me what is right and wrong? Who are you to say that that's right or wrong? Who are you to say that I should not do something? How intolerant of you to say that that lifestyle is not a lifestyle that people should embrace? Critical theory, which you've talked a little bit about over the last couple of weeks, as I said, is the idea that there is an oppressor group and there are oppressed groups. And one key feature of the oppressor group is that they try to impose on others norms and values and expectations. That's exactly why Christianity is considered part of the oppressor group. 
because we say there is right and wrong. We say that God says that's wrong or that's good. And because of that, more and more, Christianity is being critiqued and criticized and condemned in our country because we are seeking to impose on others norms that they don't want imposed on us. Uh, Neil Shinby says, Oppressor groups subjugate oppressed groups through the exercise of hegemonic power. And that power is the ability to impose your group's values, expectations, and norms on the rest of society. So, just to talk about the need for us to see our sin, be convicted of our sin, the reality of sin is not politically correct. It's not popular. It's not the atmosphere we breathe. And therefore, we probably shouldn't be surprised even if sometimes we sit here and we're a little um, disinterested in the topic or a little bit uh, hardened to the topic. Because even as believers living in the society, we can embrace the ideas that will actually work against that. There are also a couple other attitudes that I want to highlight that um, show how this attitude manifests itself in us and in our country. You've probably heard people say, God will forgive me because that's his job. His job is to forgive. He's like an indulgent grandfather who doesn't enforce the, the parents' standards just kind of overlooks it and says, oh, it's okay, as long as they're having fun and they're safe, that kind of thing. Well, there was a comedian named Chris Farley, which some of the younger people in here might have heard of. I don't expect the older group. I hadn't heard much of him until I looked into it, but I read where before he died, and he died at a young age, he was being uh, interviewed by someone from Rolling Stone, and they were driving around, L.A., and the interviewer asked this comedian, Chris Farley, um, if he ever feared dying young, because he was a very large guy, and um, his hero was John Belushi, who died at a young age. And so he asked him, are you afraid of dying young? And what he said was, you know, I'm good, I'm healthy, my dad's healthy, and he weighs 650 pounds. Um And he kind of said that very boldly and brashly. And then he kind of quieted down and he said this. I mean, there's no control in life, is there? There's only one who's in control, and he'll take me when he wants me. I don't want to know about it. It's none of my business. But when it happens, I just ask that it won't be painful and that he forgives me my sins. He was Roman Catholic, and he did attend Mass. So he had some understanding of sin. But after he said that, he kind of laughed. And the commentator, the interviewer, said he came forth with a whole bunch of laughter as if that was the only response to all the sins he might need forgiveness for. As if that was the only response for all the sins he might need uh, forgiveness for was just to kind of laugh and hope that God would be indulgent, that God would just overlook it, that God would let it go. And a lot of people are there. That's not an 
uncharacteristic view that people have is that they think that because God is love and God is supposed to forgive and God tells us to forgive, that he's just going to overlook sin and not hold us accountable. Well, the Bible tells us that God is forgiving. The Bible says very clearly he is good and ready to forgive, but he doesn't forgive apart from justice. And the only way that justice can be satisfied apart from our receiving it is for someone else to receive it. And that's what Jesus came to do, was to receive the justice we need. The other attitude that is very popular in our day and time, especially in light of things like critical theory, is the idea, I am what I am, I do what I do, because of the evil of other people. It's basically the blame game. I am what I am, I do what I do, and if it's bad, it's because of how I've been treated. It's the victim mentality, the crusade of victimhood, you might call it. Um, there's a man, I don't have to tell you his name, but he's, he's a famous guy in the news. He's been um, charged with domestic violence against his partner, and she was found beat up. But when he uh, entered the room where she was with other authorities, the first thing he said was, she hit me first. Now, that sounds like two-year-olds on the playground. But you know what? Apart from God's grace, we never grow up. And we're still going around saying, she hit me first, he hit me first, he did what he did, that's why I'm doing what I'm doing Uh, We never grow up unless God opens our eyes to see and grows us up and helps us to see, no, the reason I did what I did was because of the sin in my own heart. I did what I did because I'm a sinner. Now, the other person may have sinned, but that doesn't justify my sinning. Jesus was sinned against all the time, and he never sinned once. And so the idea that that sin is justified by sin is a lie from the pit of hell, and yet we embrace that lie so many, many times. But the way we need to think and speak is found especially in verses 36 and 37. So I'm going to wrap up here for this morning. Let me just highlight that, and this will provide the foundation for us looking a little more closely at these verses next week, Lord willing. Verse 36 says, Therefore let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? What shall we do? Um, It's important to understand that feeling guilty and even being sorry for our sin in some sense is not saving conviction of sin. You can feel bad about doing something. Uh, You can feel sorry that you did something, especially because of the consequences. I think Cain felt sorry about the consequences of his sin, but was he truly convicted of his sin in a saving way? No. I mentioned the the woman in a sermon uh, recently who committed adultery with her best friend's husband. And at one point she said, you know, at the very beginning I knew it was wrong. 
Well, she continued in that activity for a year. So the fact that she knew it was wrong wasn't the conviction of sin in any saving sense. It just meant she felt guilty and she knew it was wrong, but she suppressed that guilt and continued on in her sin. She rationalized that what she was doing didn't make her a bad person. You remember I shared the fact that when the interviewer said, does what you did make you a bad person? And she thought about it and said, no, I'm not a bad person. And I asked the question then, then what do we have to do to be bad people? If cheating on our best friend with her husband is not a bad thing, it doesn't make us a bad person, then what does it take? Um... She also rationalized it in terms of, I wasn't hurting anyone. I, I, would, I would never hurt my best friend. And yet if doing that is not hurting your best friend, what is? And so the point is, it's very, very easy for us to in some sense feel guilt for what we've done and yet rationalize it so that we don't really ask the question, what do I do? What do I do with my sin? What do, what do I do with the fact that I have sinned against God? If we're not asking the question, what do I do about my sin? How can I be delivered from my sin? Then just feeling bad about it will never result in us changing in any saving way. Uh, Proverbs 30 verse 20 says, This is the way of an adulterous woman. She eats and wipes her mouth and says, I have done no wrong. Uh, Why would she even say, I've done no wrong? Because she knows she's done wrong. The fact that she has to deny it means that she knows it, but she pushes it down. The important thing in all this is to realize that it is the loving kindness of God to show us our cancer before it kills us. It's God's loving kindness to say, you know what? You're terminal. You have a disease that will kill you eternally forever. You need help. You need the great physician. That's why Jesus said, come to me and find the help you need, the rest you need, the healing you need. And so as we think about our role in this day of salvation, we need to look around and realize that there are all kinds of people around us that have a spiritual cancer that are terminal And yet they don't see it. They may recognize that they're guilty in some sense, but they're pushing it down, they're rationalizing it, and they're not asking the question, what do I do about my sin? Pray that God will help us be sensitive to those people, to be compassionate toward those people, and to boldly, lovingly, patiently tell them there is a Savior for sinners. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that as we get more and more into the book of Acts again, I pray that you would help us to see whether or not we have truly repented and believed. Help us to see how we need to grow in our loving the people around us in a lost and dying world. And help us, no matter what sorrow we might have, Help us to rejoice in an able and willing Savior. And may our worship of you in the presence of those who need you draw them to you. We thank you for your word. Please encourage us through it. In Jesus' name, amen.